and welcome back to the Curiosity Chamber. This is Season 3, Episode 12, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give me a follow on Instagram at the Curiosity Chamber or on TikTok at the Curiosity Chamber. You'll find some uh, some GoPro footage there, a little behind the scenes uh, in action. It's kind of cool. Um, a little bit different than just the straight audio. So if you are enticed to seeing that, go ahead and check it out. Instagram and TikTok, the Curiosity Chamber. And without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce our newest guest. We're going to keep it short and sweet. This man has traveled 8,000 miles hiking. He's an author and a historian. This is Jeffrey Ryan. Thank you for being here, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me on, Jay. My pleasure. So it it goes without saying you enjoy hiking, huh? Just a little bit. Just a little bit, <laughs> about, yeah. About 8,000 so or so miles and going strong. Yeah, yeah. We're going to touch base on that, definitely. Um, I want to wanna say that any outdoor activity is, in my mind, superior to any indoor activity. I mean, I feel like as human creatures or any creature in general, I mean, we need, we need nature. I mean, your mood changes when you're outdoors, you know, after a long day of being outside, you come indoors and there's like that sense of fulfillment, accomplishment, a sense of like well-being. What do you think Amen. that's all about? Amen, brother. Amen. Uh, actually, you know, it, it, it's nothing new. It's, uh, for, fortunately, um, more and more people are rediscovering being outdoors, but, uh, you know, it's always been a big part of, of me. And I've, I've believed that, um, through and through since I was a child, fortunately I was, um, raised, uh, by parents who loved boating and, uh, spending time outside. And, uh, it really put a hook in me that's still there. I'm, I'm into, uh, well into my sixth decade now. And, uh, Still going strong. I love it. It it feeds the soul. It does. It really does. Um, I don't hike too much, but I'm always, always outdoor. And there's, there is like this sense in me that I get these urges to where I just want to go in, into the wilderness or a forest and just be left there and, and see if I can survive. I don't know what that is in me, but like a <laughs> lot of times I just get human. These, these urges. Is it? Yeah, I, I think it is. It's a... For me, it's a recalibration. Um, yeah, when I'm, it, and uh, you know, I'm not a hermit by any means, but you know, I ha I hit this threshold where it's just a little too much noise, a little too much frenetic activity, and it feels like taking a bath or uh, you know, you're doing something nice for yourself. Yeah, and uh, you know, I just think that immersion in nature is just. It's it's a great remedy. Um, it it keeps me healthy mentally and physically, and I just look forward to it every time. I agree. I agree. I'm right with you. But it seems like we live in a world now where you know I was talk everyone I I talk to on this podcast. We always bring up the fact that since jobs most jobs are remote now, a lot of people are staying indoors nearly 24 hours a day. And I, I don't know if they realize it, but it, it's like a prison cell mm -hmm. that can't be healthy. No, it can't. And, um, you know, we have a say in that. And I think a lot of times we convince ourselves that we don't, but I, I really, uh, feel like 
you're paying yourself if you go outside and it, and you're actually setting yourself up to do better work. Um, yes. Um, it, it reinvigorates you and it, and it helps recalibrate your thinking. Um, I can't tell you as a, as a creative person, how many times I've come up with great ideas, just walking around a park or, um, getting out on the water or, uh, you know, taking a nice long walk in the woods, it, or taking a weekend off to go camping or hiking somewhere. That's yeah. enough um, to do it. Of course, being out there longer helps even more. But, uh, but um, you know, those little getaways are important. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the disconnect from anything media really seems to mm-hmm. you get this natural thinking instead of almost kind of being what told to think. Because when you're in your phone or watching TV – I mean, a lot of things are, are brainless. Like you're just watching and you're, you're feeding these, they're called programs in my mind for a reason. They're, they're programmed you a certain way. When, you, when you're able to disconnect from that and get out to nature, I mean, all of that is just gone. And it's just you and your thoughts. Exactly. And then yeah. what a gift that is. Or, or yeah. You know, I, I found, uh, and it's funny you said that because I, I remember writing my journal, you're free to think great thoughts or you're free to think nothing at all. And how many times um, do we ever get to really think about nothing at all? Um, e- even that, um, we get filled up with lists and running from here to there. And it just is, it's it's a gift to be able to just say, you know what, I'm just, all I have to do today is walk. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, um, you know. Yeah, and, and and you're doing it at a pace that's more human. It's three miles an hour, not sixty-five. You know, um, <laughs> right, right. And, and you yeah. see stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. You really see stuff. It doesn't Detail. go by the window. Um, you feel it. You see it. You react to it. Um, it's it's great. <laughs> yeah, I, you you brought up a good point. There is like to to be able to have that nothing thought where you're just kind of being you're being. And I think we take that for granted a lot. The, you, people get caught up in this, this hectic life. And I mean, we're all responsible for it. We're, we're, we've all lived it. We've all done it. Like get, get caught up in the, uh, the business aspect, the working. If you have kids, you have to deal with the kids and life goes by pretty damn fast. I have a mm-hmm. five-year-old and, Oh my God. It's like a time machine. When you you pop out one kid, I mean, you start to realize, (laughs) you start to realize how fast time goes. It's kind of alarming. Yeah. And it's a gift to share that with, with a child too, and give them that perspective. But on the, on the pace thing, it's funny because I, I, I've been out on the trail for a couple weeks at a time, several times in my life. Um, you know, literally hundreds of them. And it's funny when you, when you do something like come out of the woods and go over an overpass on a freeway and then disappear into the woods on the other side. And you're thinking when you're standing on that overpass, oh my God, everyone's flying down the road at this pace. Yeah, I do that. You know, <laughs> when I'm not out here, I'm doing that. Yes, And uh, you have this perspective of you know, at, at least uh, yeah, I'm in a more sane pace now, but I also have the reality that when I get off the trail and go back to 
quote unquote, you know, um, regular life, money, money making life. Um, yes. It's yeah. uh, I'm part of that. And it's that sort of disengaged, reengaged thing that's really fasc fascinating to me. Um, it, I, you know, the disengage is where I'd like to be and the engage at that pace anyway is uh, is, is where I, I would less like to be, but um, it's necessary. I mean, you can't, it's not healthy, I, I think, to be totally on one one end of the of the spectrum or the other yeah yeah i think that's that's really good that you have that complete awareness so you know take for example someone that doesn't slow down even when they're when they're hiking you know it's just one speed all the time mm -hmm. so you're missing these these beautiful details about the plant life and mm -hmm. and mother nature and animals that you might miss you're just you're dead set locked in on this one speed do you have any tips or tricks to like how people can get in touch with themselves to kind of like slow down the time and just, it, it doesn't have to always be pedal to the metal. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, well, first of all, I, I, I walk an hour every day, no matter what. Um, yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I, I just take the time and do it. And for me, it's, it replaces going to the gym or an hour that other people might spend, um, you know, filling, filling time watching TV or, or exactly. whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, you know, we can all squeeze in some time, even, even if it's half that to, um, step outside, feel the wind, uh, in our face or take the sun, um, you know, taking the sun. Um, it's just, even in an urban environment, there's usually a park within a, a decent <laughs> distance. And of course, you know, it's, um, it's healthy. I mean, it's just really good to just drop it all, put the phone down, as you said, and really just sit and observe. Um, it, it, it's honestly medicine. Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park back in 1858, had this insight that even, and, and especially because it was an urban environment, that people absolutely needed greenery, green space to, to be healthy. And um, it was quite profound because when he built Central Park, uh, he was envisioning big skyscrapers surrounding it at the time when he was making it. And everyone thought, you know, what are you crazy? These are all stockyards and, and tenement houses around here. And of course, like so many other things, he was, he was spot on, but he was very invested in that idea, which I think is really quite amazing for someone in the mid 1800s to yeah. be uh, that dialed into it. But sure, you know, there we have the places and they're ours to enjoy and uh, they're free. <laughs> so yeah, um, get up and part. go, you know. All you listeners out there after this podcast, go take a walk. <laughs> go, go be barefoot and go walk in a field. Right now I'm just looking, so I live on the seventh floor of a uh, apartment complex and out, out of my window is a huge green field and a nice little pond and a bunch of trees and I'm seeing some dandelions right now. So honestly, right after this, I'm going into that field. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Jeff, I, I want to get your, your um, origin story. Like how did this all start? 
Like, were you always into <laughs> baking? What's, tell me the origin, will you? Yeah, sure. Um, I was really fortunate. My my mom was was actually the one who got me into camping, and it was um, in the backyard. I grew up in southern Maine, and fortunately, uh, a gentleman had left some woods in perpetuity behind the house where I grew up. And uh, when I when I first camped, I'll, I'll never forget the smell of that canvas tent that my mother had as a child and um, set it up in the backyard. And she was very, um, from a very young age, invested in me being comfortable in a variety of scenarios in the world. Uh, camping was one of them. Boating was another one. Um, and uh, traveling was, was another one. Um, and so... At a, at a young age, she pulled me out of school one day, and, and of course, she had pre-planned this and said, I, I, need, I need you to be comfortable flying on a plane. It's something that you need to know. Um, I think I was 10 years old. And, and um, we took the day off, and we flew from Portland, Maine to Boston, which was about a 25-minute flight. Sure. And, uh, you know, my dad picked us up down there. But she took me to Paul Revere's house and Bunker <laughs> Hill. And yeah. so history, history was part of it, too. Awesome. But the whole thing was, you know, you, you need to be comfortable going to places and being inquisitive and uh, and and letting and letting those things um, that pique your interest go for it. Um, check them out. Um, and that was that was really quite profound, I think, for for someone in that era to be teaching their kid all that stuff and cooking was another one. So anyway, um, when I, when I got older, um, I went to summer camps and got into hiking a little bit. Although, uh, one of my first experiences with hiking was a definite bummer. Um, the adult, uh, counselors took us on a 16 mile hike that included a lot of pavement walking and oh, I hated no. it. Yeah. Um, and didn't want to do it. It was a, <laughs> I thought, well, I don't really like hiking much. And then mm -hmm. fast forward about five years and I rediscovered it and there was no looking back. Um, you know, <laughs> I just, uh, had a completely different experience with it second time around. And after I got out of college, um, a bunch of us in when we were in college discussed doing the Appalachian trail as a possibility. And, uh, I went home from a, from a uh, Christmas break, holiday break, and found this National Geographic on the shelf at my parents' house from 1971. And the cover story was about walking from Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail. And Mexico to Canada. Yeah. So we got out of college and about four years out, my buddy Mick called and said, hey, remember we were talking about walking from Mexico to Canada? We should do it. Uh, on April 1st, we should be at the border. So long story short, um, that's what happened. We, um, we left the Whoa. Mexican border on April 1st and got to Canada on September 21st. So we hiked the, uh, the trail through California, Oregon, and Washington. Did, uh, <laughs> and so, did the people uh, think it was a joke? Cause it was on April 1st when you were telling people you were going to do that, like your parents? Well, my, actually my mother, um, had a, uh, it was a really neat experience. She, um, she said, um, I'll give you a ride to work. And I, she was driving me up to work and she stopped the car and pulled over and she said, 
I just need to know something. Are you doing this trip because you want to, or are you doing it because you're trying to impress somebody? And um, I said, I'm doing it because I want to. Yeah. And she said, good, I'm behind you a thousand percent. And Green light. Uh, <laughs> I moved home, um, paid reduced rent um, to live with my parents and dried food for six months in a food dehydrator to get ready. And, uh, started setting the whole thing up and the company I was working for made outdoor equipment, uh, LL bean. And they gave me a six month leave of that. Yeah. Yeah. And they also gave us all the equipment to product test and, uh, (laughs) all three of us. Um, it was quite an audacious thing to do in 1983. I'll tell you. To say the least. (laughs) Um, and we did it, you know, so, um, I got back from that and they told me, you know, congratulations it's great to have you back but the one thing we we can't do is give you another six month leave of absence so um i started hiking the appalachian trail with a good friend of mine and we took 28 years to do it uh we did a little piece every year until we got it done so it took us 28 years we started in 1985 and finished in 2013 and i wrote a book about it and uh you know that's so uh, that that sort of was the first of my writing career, but I've kept on hiking uh, predominantly with my hiking buddy, Wayne, and we've hiked the New England Trail, which is a long distance hiking trail we've done. Uh, we started the International Appalachian Trail this spring. And, uh, you know, we just keep going. I think we're he and I just did year 38 of doing uh, consecutive years of annual hiking trips together. That's incredible. I have I have a bunch of bunch of questions with uh, everything you just went over. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> first first and foremost, that is that is absolutely incredible. I I don't know anyone that has ever done that before, or even like close to what you just explained. But the questions that I have have to do with these long hikes, um, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. So. From Mexico to Canada, and we're going to get a little deep into this because I'm curious about how 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 do you prepare for that? Like what and during like what's the the food you eat, the caloric intake, the water, you know, the high elevation factors. Like there's a ton of stuff you have to worry about when you're doing something like this. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, you yeah. know, part of it we prepared for, and part of it we were we were. Um, young and um, naive, <laughs> naive, and uh, willing to go with the flow, which is the hugest, yeah. I think, thing about all of this experience is that, um, boy, you certainly learn go with the flow, and you certainly <laughs> learn adapting to things on the fly, which yeah, actually translates so well to everyday life. Exactly, um, that's such a beautiful life lesson. It's, adaptation, it's, it's cool, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, oh, I got a flat tire. What's plan B instead of, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, the, the world's going to end. But um, yes. um, planning for it back then um, was was quite a challenge. Um, as I mentioned before, I was I was drying food in three shifts a day. Um, yeah. Going to the farmer's market and, you know, cranking out food and putting it in zip, zip seal bags, a seal meal bag thing that I bought at Sears and still have. Um for, for repackaging food. And so we had all sorts of stuff, um, prepackaged. So what we so did what kind of was, foods would you, would you try to, to diet with? Was there like a certain 
like protein, a carb. Oh, yeah. So yeah. what we did was um, I, I, we had this huge variety of vegetables to begin with. So what we did was we mailed out boxes to post offices. So we figured how many how many days it would be between each post office. And some if one of them was 17 days, which was really out there. I mean, to carry 17 days worth of food is yes. nuts. I mean, we were we were really carrying heavy packs wow. to begin with. And then we started bargaining. You know, you'd think about what's the heaviest food I'm carrying? Why, oh, can I, get, no. can I yeah. get those guys to eat it tonight? Um, so, you know, it, it's funny. But anyway, um, we would send these packages out and I had everything um, sort of um, pre-planned. So when we get to a town, we'd call home and say, okay, send the next one to X town. And so when we get to a town, we'd open the box and it would have uh, so many days worth of vegetables. And then we'd go to a supermarket and buy the perishables, uh, the protein, um, which was predominantly uh, pepperoni and cheese and stuff like that, that, um, you know, and so... We got the routine down. One of us was carrying uh, each meal. I carried breakfast. Um, Gary carried lunches and Mick carried dinners. There were three of us. <laughs> so it made the most sense, right? So yes. um, we'd rehydrate vegetables during the day, put water in them, and then they'd be ready to make dinner. And, um, you know, that's how we rolled. And, you know, depending on what what kind of amenities were also available in the town, we'd certainly go out for a steak or a cheeseburger or whatever, mostly cheeseburgers because we were in our twenties and mostly broke, but you know, we, and we had to um, accommodate so many different kinds of environments. So yeah. early on, even in the desert, it was cold at night. We oh, yeah. went over 10,000 foot peaks that still had snow on them. Oh, um, we came down across the Mojave desert. It was 120. Oh my God. And we did 120 miles across the desert. And then we went, you know, back up to elevation again and then did um, the the whole length of the Cascade Mountain Range through Oregon and Washington, um, passing, uh, you know, Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, St. Helens had blown up. Uh, three years before we went. So it was really kind of uh, an amazing thing to see as we walked by. And I um, imagine, you know, then uh, four years later, I ended up going back out there and climbing St. Ellen's Adams and Rainier in one, two week stretch. And uh, then um, we finished that up and it's just um, how you get in shape for it. You had asked, and it's really with that particular trip, it was uh, set reasonable goals when you're starting and you just keep getting in better and better and better shape. Yeah. Yeah. Until about the three quarter mark of the trip. And then you start breaking down because I was going to ask, that was one of my questions is, um, did, the did anyone get sick because it's so torturous on your body. It's gotta be so hectic going from uh, 120 degrees to then you're going to the summits and yep. like, yeah, it's gotta be brutal. But it was so freaking awesome. I mean, it just every day was awesome. Um, you know, there were hard days. I, I can't say there weren't, but um, you, you get really invested in what's around the next corner. What What's the next day going to be like? Yes. Um, so it know. wasn't 
was it not necessarily about finishing, but it was it became more about the journey itself? Absolutely. One thousand percent. Amazing. We met a guy who was like what you had talked about early in the show, which is he was hell bent on making X miles a day. And, you know, we we came to the realization that that's just not for us. It wasn't the way to do it. It was um, let's wing it. Uh, If we're making enough forward progress to know that we're going to arrive at Canada before it snows uh, in in a meaningful way, um, then then we're doing it right. And if we hit this amazing campsite and it's three in the afternoon, there's nothing that says we can't stop. And, um, you know, that, that mentality really, really helped. Um, there were days we needed to stop and get some extra rest yeah, or, or take an extra day in a town. Um, it's important. It's like anything that you're doing that's physical. Your body tells you, um, even when, even sometimes when your mind is telling you to keep going forward, you're, you're like, right. no, 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 I gotta, I gotta take this day. I'd um, imagine the people that you were doing this with, like you probably built something so special, like a, a brotherhood, almost like com- camaraderie. I, I, there's probably nothing that can describe it. Like how close you are to these guys. Yeah. Um, you know, as, especially, um, you know, my friend Mick is like a brother to me and uh, mm-hmm. we went, we went and did that climb. I, I uh, talked about uh, when I went back out there to do the high summits again or do them. Um, yeah. And, you know, he moved out there after the hike. He said, I have to be out here in the North Cascades. It's just phenomenal. And uh, he still lives out there. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're in touch regularly. Um, You know, unfortunately the, the, we did have a little bit of a third man, an odd man out situation, which, which was tough. Um, I think, it's it's really tough. I mean, the the flip side of having the brotherhood part is having some underlying things that didn't get really dealt with particularly well. Um, again, we were quite young, and uh, you know, I was talking to Mick about it not too long ago. It's just um, you learn about that too. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's important part of yeah. growing up and maturing. Um, sure. But the hikes go on, you know, there's not a day that goes by when I'm not sort of researching another place to uh, to check out um, and or return to some of them. I went back and climbed St. Helens again after 30 years because I wanted to see how much it had changed after the volcano. And um, significant amount of change. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's really, really a great time to go right now because a lot of the devastation is still visible, but you get the feeling that it won't be for too much longer. A lot mm-hmm. of the trees that got fried and are basically oh, yeah. um, dead soldiers standing, they look wow. like driftwood, yeah. but the other trees are growing up around them and you're starting to see the effect of the forest reestablishing and, um, also, the animals are coming back. Uh, we saw mountain goats and elk, and um, it's it's cool. I mean, it was one of the best decisions I ever made was to go to have the realization. Oh my gosh, it's been thirty years. I need to go back. Thirty years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a, a distinct smell 
there used to be um, not as much now. I mean, you really have to get down into the crater for that. Okay. Um, and it and it's it's because it's a bowl. It's like three quarters of the way around the the northern part, the part that got blown out. Um, most of the most of the gas that's still active in there um, kind of blows out that side of it. So unless you're downwind of it, mm-hmm. you don't really get it. Uh, Mount Adams, on the other hand. When I was on the summit of that, it was like rotten eggs. Um, yeah, the whole way you get that real sulfur smell. Sulfur—that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I went to um, I went to Hawaii. I think maybe like six years ago. You want to talk about majestic? Like yeah. some of the stuff that you're describing, it seems like a dream state, doesn't it? Just some of the things cannot be real that you see. Like I, yeah. it wouldn't even surprise me if I saw a unicorn just pop out. Like, yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, have, totally. Have, have you ever been there to Hawaii? I've not I, 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 Alaska and Hawaii are the only two left for me and uh definitely going to get there. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. I I'm not even going to tell you anything cuz you'll get there and you'll know exactly <laughs> what, what I'm up. I, I I met an old guy when I was young that had went had gone to Alaska and, and he had come back and I said, "Wally, what was Alaska like?" and he said, well, it's kind of like Maine, only more so. <laughs> I said, yeah, I think only more so, but uh, I think more so on a pretty grand scale. So you've lived in Maine your entire life? Pretty much. Um, I, I spent four years in Wisconsin oh, okay. going to college, which was another adventure because I went to a school out there, sight unseen, um, just decided I, I wanted to do it and went out there and had a blast and uh, came back, came back to Maine afterwards and uh, pretty quickly got a job at an outdoor company. Go figure. Perfect. So. It's funny how things like that line up. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like this was your calling. So most people would call hiking their hobby, but for you, it, can you say it's a career? Yeah, I, I most definitely um, yeah. hiking and writing uh, for me, and um, they're they're still really important. Both things are really important to me. Um, I've been spending a lot of time, uh, not only writing about my adventures, but writing about where public um, conservation efforts came from in the first place. And you know, the more the more I've delved into it, the more I realize how uh, brilliant these folks were when they came up with these concepts uh, against all odds. Um, I should, I should mention that um, these places should be protected. And, and even the idea of the Appalachian trail itself uh, was another book that I wrote. The guy who came up with the idea for it um, very early on was not only an advocate for nature and the restorative aspects of being uh, being in the outdoors but interestingly he also pushed the economic value of having trails go through communities and uh bringing people out to enjoy recreation would be a benefit economically and for someone to realize that in 1921 was uh really profound (laughs) wow yeah that's a little before before his time i would say that's pretty incredible Speaking of, how, how is the uh, the hiking community itself? 
it's an amazing community. Um, I, I have two communities that uh, I have found are just astounding. One of them yeah. is the hiking community. And um, there are two parts of it, really. They're the people who are out on the trail at any mm-hmm. given time. You, you will bump into people and, and uh, you know, chat with them, whether they're out for a day hike or whether yeah. they're out for a week or two or whether they're through hiking. Um, very supportive of each other. And then also there are the local people that support the hiking community, not just with uh, laundromats and pizzerias and, you know, uh, bars and, and youth hostels and hotels and things like that, shuttle services to bring hikers to and from trails, trail sections that they get on or off. Oh, it's amazing. Um, but there are also a group of people that will act, they call them trail angels, that will actually come and meet people at trail crossings with cold beverages or, um, you know, sometimes they'll break out a full-blown barbecue. Um, <laughs> but in other cases, I've gone through areas, Wayne and I hiked through an area uh, where there was a 16-mile section without water. Oh, and no. And somebody had come out and left jugs of water with, with uh, signs on them saying, please take what you need. I replenish this every other day until the drought's over. So they were, they were of their own volition yeah, getting into yeah. their vehicle every other day and swapping out the water, which is really phenomenal. I mean, that says so much about the community in itself right there. That's just one doing. And I'm sure that that's all over the place in the, in these communities. That's, whew, that it is. And I, you know, I, I was thinking about it afterwards. I wrote about it is, um, how profound is it that somebody that you'll never meet in person yeah. mm-hmm. has, has, has gone to that length for you? Um, sure. You know, there's no way to thank them, you know, other than in, in, the, in print, um, and say, you know, I know who you are sort of, but I really want to thank you. Um, Cause that's, that's just really cool. Um, yeah. It's so crazy. Just imagine that you're on that hike and you're so thirsty. You're so thirsty and you you have no idea how you're going to make it out. You underpacked or for whatever reason, like it's an emergency. And the next thing you see is like gallons of water right there. Yeah. The funny <laughs> thing, that, and I have to admit this, the funny thing about that whole episode is I looked down through the trees and saw all these jugs, plastic jugs. And my initial thought, I almost turned around and said something to Wayne was, you know, I can't believe someone littered out here in the middle. Of the <laughs> and uh, shame on you, you know, shame on me, you know, for, for thinking the bad side of the coin. But, uh, you know, I thanked them profusely as I lifted the jug to my mouth. Yeah, no kidding. Maybe they're a listener of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And the other the other community is I, I have a 1985 Volkswagen camper and uh, travel around the country in it, which, you know, a lot of people would say is is uh, flirting with disaster. But um, <laughs> it's uh, because of its age. But, um, you know, I've also met a community of, of people who uh, own and love those vans nationwide. And uh, you get into a little bit of a jam or, or you uh, find a, a problem under the I was going to say under the hood, but it's really under the back. <laughs> um, you know, and people will just weigh in. Oh, yeah, I've had that problem before. Try this, try that. Um, yes, yes. I, I had a guy drive by me. I stalled in um, 
in Sedona on the on the main drag there, and the guy drove by in a in a in a uh, forerunner and rolled the window down and said, "Is that an '85?" And I said, "Yep." <laughs> and he said, "I have one too. Get to my house, and I'll help oh, you." Yeah. And uh, he this is a true story. He said, "Don't don't turn the key for 17 seconds, and then go and then, and and give me your business card, and I'll text you directions to my house." What? So I said, okay. So about 10 seconds went by and I said, you know, he's not going to know. So I go to turn the key and all of a sudden a message comes up on my phone and it says, not yet. <laughs> he was keeping count too. There yeah. Was no yeah. <laughs> so Danny and Sedona, he, he was solid. Um, That's crazy. Really great guy. Did it actually work? The seventeen seconds, and you went to go pop it, and it, and it, it did. Started? It worked. I didn't turn the key till seventeen seconds, and uh, it was so a vacuum dumb. leak, and uh, oh my we God. fixed it. <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah. Um, there's a comedian. I forgot what his name is, but he's a a bigger fella. I think he's Mexican. He's pretty popular, but he's into. Uh, I think he has like a whole warehouse. Of these 1985, I'm not sure if that's the year, but he's got the Volkswagen van. Yeah. Giant collector. I'm talking like millions of dollars worth in a <laughs> warehouse. Yeah, he's he's addicted to it. I don't know what it is. Yeah, the community is super strong, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty fun. Um, yeah. They're so well laid out. You know, I could go on a whole different podcast about that. But, uh, <laughs> is that right? But, you know, it's, uh, it, it's fun. It's, it's my... Uh, it's my my traveling office slash uh, you know sleeping headquarters and uh, it's fun. Well, I'm interested. So, it, is it just like a an aura, like a different feeling when you enter that vehicle and you're driving it, or what is like? Does your mindset shift? It's hiking on it? wheels. That's what I call it's it. Hiking um, on wheels. Yeah, it's right up yeah, your alley. It, well, yeah, because <laughs> um, what's really bizarre about those vans is there's no nose. I mean, you literally feel like you're driving in a, in a movie theater. Um, it's, <laughs> it's the panorama in front of you is, is very similar to hiking. And, um, you know, it's the same, it's the same type of uh, thing, except you're not carrying the pack. You have a, a refrigerator freezer behind you and two beds and a two burner stink, uh, sink. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, two burner stove and a sink, and what else do you need? Um, how far will you go in that thing? I've done thirty eight states and uh, parts of Canada. States. Whoa! Yeah, um, it's it's been it's been amazing. Was that um, one of your first vehicles that you owned? No, um, I actually bought it in twenty fourteen for oh, okay. the express purpose of book touring. Um, you know, <laughs> awesome. I just. Figured it was the perfect vehicle for it, and um, I had it wrapped um, with um, a, a photograph that Wayne had taken of me on top of a mountain, and uh, so the wrap goes on both sides of it, and uh, then I put a book cover, the the most current book cover, on the back, and uh, travel around and do uh, libraries and different uh, outdoor stores and all sorts of places. Um, why is that vehicle correlated so much with hippies? Do you have any idea why? Oh, I think it's, it's the relaxed lifestyle. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, 
go, go uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's the hippie bus, but yeah. Um, <laughs> now, now there's so I, I have a solar panel on the top and, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a modified hippie bus. I you guess. pimped it out. Yeah. Modern hippie. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Let's get back. That's, that's fun. I love talking about cars like that, but um, let's get back to, uh, I got a couple more questions about yeah. some hiking. Um, I want to know the, uh, who the pioneers of hiking are. You know, Wow, that's a great question. Well, Henry David Thoreau was really the first, uh, you know, a notable American uh, walker. Um, he even wrote a, a book or a, an essay called On Walking. Um, and, and he talks about how um, uh, there are a certain breed of people that are born into the, the uh, society of walkers and uh, those who get it are, are get it bad, you know, and um, he was one of them. Um, he loved to amble around Concord, Massachusetts, and got as far as Katahdin in Maine, the highest peak, um, and did a lot of exploring on uh, with canoe and boat as well. Um, Was you know, there they, just like something that erupted in him that just kind of said, I have to do this? Or was it was there a purpose behind it? Or what was it? I think because he was a writer, it was where his thoughts came from. And um, mm-hmm. he could he could observe the community. He made a lot of observations that yeah. um, are really profound. It's, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, the whole, the decision at four yes. o'clock in the afternoon for the blacksmith to keep on going, or could he put his tools down and go for a walk? Um, he was talking about that. And, um, you know, and, and then the next sort of big phase for hiking was, um, Actually, the first hiking club in the United States, I believe, was um, founded in Portland, Maine, where I'm sitting right now. Um, <laughs> and, and shortly thereafter, only a couple of years thereafter, came the Appalachian Mountain Club in Boston. Um, and the Appalachian Mountain Club was uh, responsible for building a number of trails in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, which were frequented and still are to a large degree by um Bostonians and New Yorkers who would come up and, and enjoy the, the cooler air and the thrill of hiking up to these peaks. But at that time, almost all of the trails were what we call out and back. So they went up to a scenic overlook and went back from to where they started. Oftentimes they were inns, country inns. So people would walk up from the inn, catch the view, go back down to the inn and uh, have cocktails. And um, nice. You know, there was a guy named Sturgis Prey who went up there in uh, the late 1800s, and he was a landscape designer by trade and had this epiphany that these yeah. trails should be interconnected. They shouldn't be out and back. You could make a whole trail system. And so he oh was God. really the first one to have this idea of interrelated, you know, interconnected trails. He's the godfather. And the godfather. And... Yeah. As it turned out, he had this, this, he was mentoring this kid um, who he had helped build trails up there. Well, the kid's name was Benton Mackay, and he was the guy who grew up to come up with the idea for the Appalachian Trail. So, you know, hiking sort of had its, um, 
had its early starts in, of course, out in the Sierras, John Muir was doing it in the early 1900s. But um, out east, it was mostly happening in New York, um, in the Palisades and uh, in New England, and mostly in, in New Hampshire. So, and also of note, the first long distance trail that was um, one cohesive trail end to end was called the Long Trail, and it was in, in Vermont. And it officially opened in 1910 and did the length of Vermont um, from the Massachusetts border to Canada. And yes, I have hiked it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't even going to yeah. ask because yeah. I know the answer. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's where it all kind of started. And then when the Appalachian Trail um, idea finally took off, it was New Hampshire and New York that had the first completed sections. And then it started sort of developing out from there. So when we're talking about trails, exactly how are they created? Because I understand if one person does a trail, like you need multiple people to go through the same trail in order to, to kind of pave the way, right. To mm -hmm. kind of like kill the, the grass or whatever it should be to make that trail. So is it so, so is it by word of mouth? Just like back then, I mean, to tell other people to go walk from here to here and show them on a map. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, that's a really great question. So it's, it's interesting how it how it took shape. So there was mm -hmm. one guy who was in charge of almost all of it, and his name was Myron Avery. And Avery actually cited over two thousand miles personally walked and oh figured out where the trail would go, and yeah. and then had people building it uh, in his wake. Um, okay. He was he was a real character. He had a bicycle wheel that was calibrated for mileage. And he wheeled it in front of him. I think it weighed 35 pounds. Oh and he wheeled this thing in front of him and he would write down, um, okay, walk a mile across this stream and then walk two tenths of a mile up to the yes. ridge. And then, do, yes. you know, so he was basically writing the trail description as he was wheeling this thing through the woods. That's ex exactly what I was talking about. Yes. Yes. And uh, <laughs> he would also blaze the trees with um, paint and uh -huh. or have someone do it afterwards. So it was a two inch by six inch, what they call blaze. It's a, it's a paint swab on a tree mm -hmm. and um, that would mark the trail. And um, as only Avery could do, he insisted on titanium oxide paint. And uh, if it wasn't done correctly, he would chastise people and tell them to go do it right. But um, anyway, he was he was doing that. But in some cases, particularly up in Maine, uh, there was a 288 mile stretch and part of it was on old logging roads. And so he he where he could, he would um, sort of cobble sections together using those logging roads initially because it meant that he he or someone else wouldn't have to blaze the trail right. in that particular section. Over wow. the years, a lot of them moved off of those unless they were on um, public land um, and would get moved into uh, more up onto the ranges and into the woods where it was public land. Um, originally, he negotiated with landowners to cross their land if it was logging roads. But, you know, the, it was it was neat. 
there's so many fine details that the average person that is not invested in this space, th- there's just so many details that you would never expect. Well, and, and you're right. And the other one, quite frankly, is erosion. And so there, there yeah. is a lot of engineering that goes on okay. um, to sort of get from point A to B. It can't, it can't be a straight line in most cases. Right. It has right. to be sculpted, and there are good reasons for doing that. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they'd be out rebuilding it every year because right. the water the water would wash all the rocks back down again, and yeah, you know, yeah. people would destroy. They'd start walking around it, and you'd have a big mud pit. Yeah, can't have that. No, um, geez, that's a lot of information. Um, <laughs> Probably too much. It's just it's just new to me, so it's it's exciting. It's definitely a lot. Um, but l- let me ask you this: um, We understand that that hiking and being outdoors is it can be so beneficial, almost like a medicine, like we were talking about. So, how can we get more kids or the youth to to enjoy the outdoors instead of they are so attached? And don't get me wrong, I can get attached to it too to electronics. For sure, it's it's part of everyday life. But how do we how do we get them back outdoors? I remember when I was a young kid, and I'm sure you don't. I don't need to say you probably did this. I know you did this. But <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, we would ride our bicycles outside, and we would just go enjoy nature, play baseball outside, or go like go for a walk in in these parks and yada. Everything was outside. Everything, right. you know. Right. So how do we get these kids to? to get back outdoors, the great outdoors, if you will. I'm so glad you asked that. So, you know, I've, I've been very invested in that um, personally because it's so important. And it, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that the outdoors have given so much to me. I just want kids to be able um, uh, to experience it, whether they gravitate to it um, like I did or, or even to a much lesser degree. It's not really important. What's important is they get to appreciate it as a resource and know it's there and, you know, hopefully help, help protect it for those coming after us. And um, I've been really fortunate to have uh, partnering up with an organization here in Maine that's doing some really cool stuff and it's called teens, teens to trails. And what they're doing is they're, they're setting up outdoor clubs in high schools and, a lot of donated equipment from companies has really helped or repurposed equipment that's been retired, but it is still in good shape. And um, they, they give um, all of the resources and um, help encourage high schools to establish outdoor clubs and keep them strong. And they provide the outing. So um, go kayaking, go out on an overnight, yes. um, go yes. day hiking. Um, they have mentors within each school, but they the program helps the mentors set up the programs because you know the last thing they need to do as a teacher is take on a whole other sort of teaching module. Right. Um, so Teens to Trails it has a lot of state re- state support right now, a lot of corporate support, and um, a lot of uh, parental support. And, Amazing. and it's really growing. There are literally hundreds of these clubs in our state right now. And um, Alicia Pulsifer, who runs it, 
um, has been contacted by several other states. How do we get this thing going uh, right. in our community? So there are really cool initiatives like that, um, which are really promising. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's cool. And, uh, yeah. you know, just on a, on a micro level, um, I just think it, it starts with parents making it a priority. Yeah. yeah. Hey, even here we have uh, car alarm issues. Um, <laughs> Someone's got to go outside to turn it off. So, I mean, that's a blessing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it's important for, um, for parents to team up and, and take kids out. I mean, that's what we did. Um, you know, it's um, let's take the kids for a hike on Saturday. Yes. Um, yes. You know, outdoor picnic or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's and, um, and put the phone put the phone in the glove compartment. Oh, please, please just leave your phone at home. Jeez. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I agree. It, it kind of my mind gets blown. Like I, I, I have these thoughts. I, I kind of think different, I think. But it's just um, how many people have these these life changing ideas that have not they weren't able to tap into them yet because they haven't gone out on a hike yet. Like something like that, like. Yeah, people have these ideas, but they're they'll never come to fruition because they haven't gone outside and had a different perspective. For example, like being on top of a summit, like your mind, your thoughts will completely change because of what you're seeing. Right. And, so, you know, the other the, the other piece of this is that we have the time to think them through and we have the time to write them down. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in the tent after dinner and, um, you know, I'm writing in my journal about what happened during the day. Right. And, you know, that's, that's sort of part of that. Yes. Is, you're right. um, just writing down your thoughts, but A even recap. having the time and the space to do it, um, it either consciously or subconsciously, your mind is working through stuff. And, um, it's it's important to to claim that space, and I think we're we're so uh, attuned to doing things quickly and on the surface because we don't think we have time to do a deep dive. You're and, right. And when we're out there, it's nothing but a deep dive. <laughs> you know, it, it's um, <laughs> yes. Or you have the time to do it. I should say. You know, when, when you're actually hiking, it, uh, there's a, I don't know, this will sound a little strange, but it's its like I have five things that I sort of try to keep on my forefront. Um, and, and they keep me engaged in the activity of hiking. And there really are, you know, basic. It's like, am I on the trail? When's the last time I saw a blaze? How's my health? How's the weather? Where's my buddy? Um, where are we going to stop? Where, where's the next water? I mean, those are, those are the things that are, that you're sort of in charge of being in charge of on a personal level when you're out there. Yes. Um, yes. And it, and it, it's, it's important that you do all those things to make sure that you're in a good space and able to enjoy it and able to get out. Right. Yeah. And yeah. able to not get lost, you know, and, and the people who get lost, including myself, at times are the ones who kind of let all that stuff go and just start thinking about whatever. And then it's like, wait a minute, you know, 
when was the last time I was absolutely sure I was on the trail? Uh oh, I better turn around, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that stuff. That but when you're hairy. in the tent and and the day is over and you're in this place and you can go, okay, you know, the guard is completely down now. What do I want to think about? Or or you know, what what gift am I going to give to myself? Um, yes, that's that's time. That's really important. It's 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 when the profound stuff comes out, um, you know, and it's it's cool to be able to claim that space, whether it's yeah. a writing conference or a hike or, a, you know, what, whatever it may be, a, you know, a spa weekend, a, a, you know, <laughs> a Zen retreat, whatever it may be. It's like that. It's like, OK, all the other stuff I can deal with when I get back. I or I, I'll feel the waves of it coming back on my drive back. Right. You know, uh-huh. But, uh-huh. But, um, but for now, um, the the big gift of hiking is everything's present. And uh, there's not much you can do about the stuff you left behind. And there's not much stuff you can do about the stuff that's in the, you know, in the, in the future. But right there, you can really enjoy it. Um, it's a gift. Listen, you- you have no objections from me. Everything you said is true. And I was going to ask you if you have anything to give our, our listeners, but I mean, that was, that seems like a good place to leave it right there. That was fantastic. Um, Jeff, how can our, our listeners reach out to you? Or do you want to give a shout out to your, uh, any of your social media, ironically, or <laughs> any books? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, com. um, is where you'll you'll find a lot of information about my books, um, trip planning, um, how to section hike, um, how to set up shuttles so that you could get um, dropped off by someone at a beginning or end and picked up at the end point, um, you know things like that. And um, you know I've got a new book coming out in September, which I'm pretty excited about, nice. called "This This Land Was Saved for You and Me." Um, and, uh, that's a conservation book about sort of the, the people that were on the forefront of making sure we had these places to enjoy. So looking forward to that coming out and, uh, Appalachian Odyssey is my Facebook page. Um, stay in touch, reach out with any questions you have about how to get out and enjoy it. It's, uh, life is short, go for a hike. <laughs> I agree. Congrats on all your success, Jeff. It was a it was such a pleasure to speak with you. I've learned so much about hiking. I went into this knowing nothing. I feel <laughs> I feel so much better about it. And everyone at home that's listening, go outside. There you go. Thanks, Jay. You're welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Take care, Ciao. everyone. Bye bye.